You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, President Biden publicly warns Israel not to strike Gaza's biggest hospital. There is an effort to uh, take this pause to deal with the release of prisoners, and that's being negotiated as well. So I remain somewhat hopeful that the hospital must be protected. Thousands take to Spain's streets to protest the amnesty deal for Catalan separatists. In New York, Don Jr. defends the sexiness of his father's properties in the face of fraud accusations. And Monocle's Laura Kramer is here too. What do you have for us today, Laura? We'll chat about whether the return of White Lotus and the Beatles can cure loneliness. More from Laura a bit later. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, on the 40th day of the Israel-Hamas war, US President Joe Biden says the Al-Shifa hospital must be protected as fighting rages close to the facility in Gaza City. Israel has accused Hamas of running a command centre under Al-Shifa, which the hospital and Hamas deny. The hospital is the biggest in Gaza, with dozens of premature babies and 45 kidney patients needing dialysis, but who can't be treated properly due to a lack of power, according to the United Nations. The Israeli military says it's in the process of coordinating the transfer of incubators from a hospital in Israel to Gaza. Matthew Morris is a spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross based here in London. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how perilous a situation is it for patients and staff of the Al-Shifa hospital? Good afternoon. Yes, extremely dangerous. It's a dire situation there. It's the main hospital in Gaza. But also the situation is desperate in other medical facilities as well. I think the reports that you're hearing, we're we're also hearing and seeing the images and video. It's very, very distressing. Colleagues, a few days ago, we did manage to get to Al-Shifa Hospital um, with a convoy of medical items. Actually, that had come under fire. So actually, one of the trucks we had to leave behind. But we managed to get four trucks of supplies there. And, And staff, colleagues told me of seeing thousands of um, internally displaced people who were staying at the hospital. And then in terms of the medical situation, uh, staff having to make very, very difficult decisions, um, not able to treat everybody in the way that they would like, of course, power going down, communications going down, not having the right medical supplies. So it really, really difficult situation. And is it viable for Israel to be able to support and evacuate these patients and staff while simultaneously wanting to take action against this alleged command centre underneath? Well, part of our role is to remind all parties in all conflicts of their legal obligations uh, under 
international humanitarian law, IHL, often known as the war, uh, laws of war. And we are constantly reminding both parties of, the, of their obligations. And there is a lot of discussion around evacuations, around sending supplies in. Now, that's something we are trying to send as many supplies in as we can, but it's incredibly difficult. And that example that I gave you was, was one where the ICRC, we had the security guarantees that we seek every time we uh, send a convoy of supplies. We don't do these things quietly or silently. We do it in full transparency. We secure get the security guarantees that we need, and then our staff move. And that uh, convoy came under uh, fire. So that gives you an example of how, how difficult it is. So an evacuation of a hospital, that's really complicated and difficult. I think if we just stop for a minute and try and imagine perhaps somewhere closer to home in Manchester, London, Cardiff, if somebody said, let's evacuate a hospital with critically ill patients, an ICU unit, um, premature babies, that all of those things and many, many other uh, types of patients, we would immediately realise how complex that could be, let alone when you then transfer that concept to a, an active conflict zone. So very, very complex. It's something that uh, I know our colleagues are in touch with um, the parties about. And, and we do stand ready to play our neutral intermediary role and try and facilitate where we can. But, but something like that, very, very complex. What's the situation for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who have fled to the south of the Gaza Strip? Difficult. Uh, again, my colleagues have, have talked to me in recent days. They've described uh, trying to take vehicles across the ma- along the main road and scores and scores of people trying to flee to find somewhere safe, sleeping out in the open, sleeping uh, uh, under trees. Uh, communications is often going down, which means when people are, are hurt or need help, they can't phone for an ambulance. Um, but it also means they get separated and they can't contact their lo- loved ones. And then when those, those communications stay down, uh, people get separated, families get separated. And we know that there are uh, children who are separated from parents and things like that. And I think that what we need is to, to have the safe and sustained access that humanitarian organisations need. Again, there's much talk about a pause or pauses, but really something that we need is going to have to be very radically different to what the situation is right now. We do need series of pauses. We do need humanitarian aid organisations to be allowed to operate safely, to take staff and supplies in, but also people who fled their homes. Again, IHL, the laws of war, they require that the parties make sure that they provide for these people. So people need food, they need water, they need shelter, all sorts of other things. Um, So we do need some kind of radical solution. And how many trucks a day are now getting over the Egyptian border? And what is the distribution effort like? You mentioned the challenges of not having communications. Yeah, I've I've heard other agencies talking about something like 50 trucks a day. I mean, we've had some dozens of trucks, which is quite clearly nowhere and near enough and we've been able to facilitate some medical evacuation so accompanying ambulances to take some patients out and also being able to accompany some uh, uh, displaced people uh, to leave as well but again we were hearing before the crisis um, to keep Gaza going there were something like more than 500 trucks per day so the situation now is nowhere near 
what it needs to be. And again, we have the, the, the complication of, of, of trucks uh, that need to move within the Gaza Strip, not being able to because of the, the, the shortage of fuel. So the difficulties are, are mounting up day by day. It's a very complex crisis. But it's also a simple point to make that we need sustained safe access for, for humanitarians and we need some real solutions. We need some kind of agreement uh, to provide respite and provide the support that people need in the north, in the middle, in the south of Gaza. And finally, the Red Cross has decades of experience uh, in the world's most complicated situations. But how challenging is coordinating the aid response on this scale when you've got such high tensions, but also so many invested international nations as well? It's very complex. It is very complex. I, uh, I'm proud to work for the ICRC and I have colleagues who are working tirelessly to do everything they possibly can. We're working day and night to support and try and provide um, what we need to do in Gaza. We're also working uh, day after day to try and secure the release of the Israeli hostages, the people that were taken uh, on the 7th of October. And we've called repeatedly and clearly for their release. All hostages must be released. And I think it's clear that across the region, um, but across the world, this is something that um, is having a devastating toll on people. And that is once again why uh, our experience as a neutral and impartial actor, we don't take sides. We talk to the sides uh, confidentially. We talk to them on a daily basis. We remind them of their obligations. We make it clear when we have something to say to them. But again, in public, you know, we need to see some, some changes on the ground and a much better access for, for all sorts of humanitarian organisations. This is going to be, uh, this is a short-term crisis, but it's going to be in the mid-term and the long-term too. Thank you, Matt. That was Matthew Morris from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Now here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Gabon's military leaders have said they plan to hold a general election in August 2025, following pressure from the international community for the return to civilian rule. A new constitution is to be presented in October next year and adopted by the end of that year in a referendum. Seismic activity in Iceland has decreased in size and intensity, but authorities say the risk of a volcanic eruption remains significant. Nearly 4,000 people were evacuated over the weekend after earthquakes. And Kuwait Airways is expecting compensation from plane maker Airbus for delays in the delivery of commercial jets. Aerospace manufacturers have been struggling with supply chain issues, with pressure growing on plane makers to start paying penalties. State-owned Kuwait Airways said the delays had forced the airline to adjust its network and rescheduled flights. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Now, over the weekend, tens of thousands of people demonstrated across Spain against Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez's plans to grant amnesty to Catalan separatists in order to secure support for another term in office. Sánchez signed the controversial agreement last week after the Catalan separatist Junts Party gave its backing to the Prime Minister's Spanish Socialist Workers' Party to form a new government, that deal coming four months after the Spanish election resulted in no single party gaining a majority in Parliament. Dr Pablo Calderón Martínez is an Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at Northeastern University London. Dr Martínez, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what do we know about the details of the deal that's been done with the Junts? 
Uh, well, we, we know that it's offering a wide-ranging pardon, basically for everybody that had uh, to play any part in the failed independence referendum for Catalonia. Uh, it covers a very long period of time, pretty much from 2012 up until today, right up until uh, the, 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 uh, when the law was proposed. So it pretty much covers everybody that had anything to do with the independence movement and the, the riots and all that we know happened uh, with the failed attempt to gain independence in Catalonia. Uh, it covers around 500 people, uh, possibly more, and it will be dealt with individually with the courts uh, and people who have to put forward uh, their own case and, and see if they can qualify for uh, amnesty. But it seems to be a very wide-ranging and very deep and very uh, com- comprehensive pardon, really. But are there any protections against a future right-wing government, say, revoking these amnesties? It's very hard to do so, right? Once a law passes, you cannot really be reversing it. And, and legally speaking, it'll be very, very difficult. I think once the pardon are, are, are granted, it's very hard to give it uh, to see it go back, particularly because if this succeeds, then uh, the likelihood is we're going to have a socialist government for the first, for the next few years, possibly four or five years. So... It's very hard to see how that would happen. Uh, but again, I've never, you know, I've never said never in Spanish politics and we'll have to wait and see what happens. And many uh, of those separatists had fled overseas. Have we started to see some of them return now? Oh, yeah, but we'll start seeing returns for, for sure. Obviously, Puigdemont being the most high-profile uh, exile at the moment, who's currently in Belgium. And uh, last I heard, there's talk about giving him police escorts from Belgium, which is probably going to anger certain sectors of Spanish society even more. Uh, and the idea that he comes back, I'm sure he's going to make it a triumphant return and he's going to try to sell this as a huge victory for the independentist movement in, in Catalonia, which, by the way, has been flagging and has been really in decline in the last few years. And it's just the way the arithmetics of this particular last election have given them the, the, the possibility to negotiate this deal. But it's not something that, you know, it's, it's a movement that has been certainly losing support of the, le- the last few years, but certainly that triumphant return of many of the leaders is going to be interesting to see. And is it now essentially a tale of two Spain, celebrations in Catalonia, but also protests across the rest of Spain, or are the protests focused in particular parts of Spain? Well, I think, you know, if you follow Spain, you'll you hear the tale of Spain for the last 200 years, maybe. Uh, always apparently a divided country between left and right, um, usually I think the majority of people, perhaps a slight majority of people, are more socially left-leaning, but there's still very strong sort of right-wing feelings. So I don't think it's necessarily a split regionally, right? Because, again, even Catalonia was fairly even split in terms of, of independence movement. And if anything, the pro-independence support was never uh, substantially above 50%. So I think Spain, not just regionally, but definitely across different sectors and even families is still very much divided between a new line of fight and left-wing politics, which has become sort of, you know, the territorial politics combined with this very toxic culture of ultra-politics, which is creating a very, you know, in my opinion, a very toxic environment in Spain. Now, even some of those in Sanchez's own party argue that the amnesty undermines the rule of law. What's going to be the impact long-term for him on his programme for an ability to govern? I think... Uh, Sanchez is many, many things, but the most important thing for me and the one that I'm most impressed is a political survivor. He's a very good operator, and it seems that every single gamble he takes, it somehow manages to pay off. 
so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of reticence within his own party and certainly across Spain. Uh, but at the end of the day, is is the name of the game is governing, right? And and Spain is a parliamentary democracy, and you know we follow the rules of the game, and those are the rules of the game um, because of the arithmetic and 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 you know the way that the election turned out. This was the only path towards government. I think eventually people might forget about this if Pedro Sanchez manages to successfully navigate the next few months, the next possibly couple of years, and particularly the economy doesn't take a hit. At the end of the day, it's all about the economy and it's all about really dealing with the cost of living crisis, inflation, which so far uh, Spain has been relatively good at handling. Uh, but yeah, I'm, not, I'm sure it's going to be very, very difficult for the first few months, but I'm also confident that Pedro Sanchez has the political know-how to navigate these difficulties. Dr. Pablo Calderon Martinez, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio, coming to you live from Midori House in London. Now, on Monday in New York, Donald Trump Jr. returned to court to take the stand in his family business's civil fraud trial. Jr. described the former president as a genius and an artist with real estate. The prosecutors accused the father and son, as well as brother Eric, of fraudulently inflating valuations on properties to secure favourable loans. Losing the case could not only result in a fine to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, but also a ban from doing business in the state of New York. Chris Chermack is Monocle's Washington correspondent. Chris, how did Donald Jr. do on the stand yesterday? Well, it's interesting uh, looking at how he did on the stand yesterday compared to his first appearance. Essentially, he's he's now been on the stand twice, and it was really just a shift in tone, if you will. The first time, obviously, he was brought to the stand by prosecutors who were sort of, you know, issuing more aggressive questions, challenging him on what he knew about the valuations of properties of the Trump organization. Uh, he at that point very much sort of made this point essentially that he was not that involved in the valuations. That was sort of key to his defense throughout this, that this was the accountants who did the work and not necessarily his own valuations. This time around, given that it was now the defense putting him on the stand, it was, as you said in that introduction, it was very much kind of about um, – sort of raising up the 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 value uh and the reputation of the Trump organization if you will and of Donald Trump himself as as you say an artist a genius in real estate all of this so it was a very different style of questioning that really was just focused on this idea of essentially how great the Trump organization was this was something that even prosecutors tried to have this this sort of line of questioning reduced but the judge actually said he was interested in this he wanted to hear more of this so now that the defense is 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 the one sort of in charge of this, they're going to be bringing witnesses over the next month or so. We can expect a fair amount more of this, looking at what the Trump organization is, why in, in the eyes of Trump and his sons and other allies, um, he has done a good job in real estate and there's really nothing to be worried about. But there does seem to be quite a lot to worry about because legal commentators are saying the case is not going well for the Trump family as a whole. 
Well, absolutely. And I mean, and that starts with the very fact that, frankly, before this case even began, the judge, Arthur Angeron, had already ruled that Donald Trump and the organization inflated the value of assets. So in that sense, it, it was not going well from the start. This trial is simply about damages and about what, what the consequences are of those fraudulent valuations. So where it's going to go there, that is sort of what we don't know entirely from the judge, how much of a penalty he is going to put on uh, Trump and his sons for what happened. Uh, in terms of sort of how the trial itself has gone, Donald Trump himself, of course, was also on the stand, and he very aggressively tried to make this case, essentially, that yes, he may have been involved in some of these valuations. He took a bit of a different line than his sons in that sense. He said he was involved, but that didn't really matter because the, you know, the banks and insurance companies that used these valuations um, didn't necessarily rely on those, knew that they wouldn't necessarily be reliable. And anyway, a lot of the defense in this case is nobody was harmed. They, they repaid these loans. So even if Donald Trump got favorable conditions, nobody was harmed by this and there shouldn't be any punishment. Whether that argument works, that's still an open question whether the judge will listen to that and say, well, then maybe the penalties shouldn't be quite as large as prosecutors want. And Trump's daughter, Ivanka, was on the stand last week. She isn't accused in this case, but she seemed not to be able to recall a lot despite working at the Trump organization herself for years. Well, yes. I mean, that, as I say, I think that's been one of the arguments for both Ivanka Trump and the sons, in a way, whether it's not recalling or trying to make this case, essentially, that they were not involved so much in the specifics of the valuations. That was certainly very much the the tenure of, of, of her, her own testimony as well. Although prosecutors tried to make the case more directly to her that she was more involved than she would suggest. They presented an email, for example, that she had issued um, in a particular case of one particular resort, the Doral Golf Resort, where she suggested that Donald Trump his should be valued at around $2 billion, and that was about $2.2 billion below what Donald Trump himself values himself at. So that was an example of the fact that she did know perhaps a little bit more than she was letting on. And what would be the impact on the family of not being able to do business in New York? Is this just a pride thing? And how is this impacting the race as a whole? Well, so in terms of the the family itself, it is definitely not just a pride thing. I mean, when you listen to Donald Trump, you would think perhaps it is. But I think at the same time, he clearly recognizes that this is a case that has a different kind of set of consequences than the criminal trials that he is facing, the four criminal trials that he is facing. This is the one that has real monetary consequences, right? Not only could he face hundreds of millions of dollars in fines, but he could also be barred from doing business in New York, as could his sons. That is something that could have major, major repercussions on him, whatever happens in the presidential race, if you will, uh, going forward. If he were, you know, even if he were to lose that race, it has an impact on him doing business going forward. In terms of the general race and so on, it is not, it has to be said, it's not having a tremendous impact on the election race, except for the fact that, of course, he is focusing on the fact that he feels this is politicized. He's said that repeatedly. It's keeping him away from the campaign trail. 
But that said, it, when it comes to the polls at the moment, at the very least, you could almost argue these kinds of things are helping him. He is still holding a commanding lead when it comes to the Republican presidential primary. And even some polls more recently in the last week or so are suggesting that he may even have something of a small lead against Joe Biden in a general election coming up next year. So in that sense, these trials, these appearances by him and his sons have not really put a dent in his presidential campaign. Chris Chermak, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally today, it's time for a look at the latest cultural news. Laura Kramer is a Monocle radio producer and our entertainment correspondent, and she joins me now. Hi, Laura. What have you got for us today? Well, I'm going to spare you my version of the White Lotus theme, although I think I do a pretty good job of it. However... Save that for the Christmas special episode. (laughs) I think you're right. It's exciting news for fans of the show. The series is wasting no time getting back to work after the strikes have been called off in Hollywood. So it's coming up on the third season and production has kicked off its casting process. Mm -hmm. They are looking for 13 people, 13 roles, spanning the ages from 18 to 80. So it's going to be a fresh and diverse ensemble cast, as we all know from the show. And we're hearing that the mysterious characters include a corporate executive, an actress, a mother, and misfit and a yogi. Now, it's currently scheduled to start filming in early February, and they'll be heading to Thailand this time. The the narrative is set against the backdrop of a wellness spa. Very exciting. And now the mastermind behind the show, Mike White, says that the new season will be like a supersized version of the show with longer, bigger, and crazier. And it's set to explore themes of death in Eastern religion and spirituality. However, fans of the show have a little bit of time to wait because it's not going to be returning until 2025. So we have to hang tight. But I'm so excited. All this news that's coming out, all these little tidbits. I'm just, I can't wait. I'm buzzing. I mean, when I was growing up, a series like this, it would be every year, like clockwork, it would come out. We're now getting these huge gaps between series, three or four years, and you really have to sort of scratch your head, don't you, to, to get it. But is that is it part of it? Is that it's? I mean, I'm looking at the cast here. It's such an all-star cast that he needs to pull together all those timings. He's obviously got people knocking down his door. Uh, but, it, I mean, who, do you, who would you want to see in there? Because we are getting one returner this time, who is Natasha Rothwell, who played Belinda, the assistant in the first series. But, I mean, MVP Jennifer Coolidge is isn't coming back, is she? Sadly, she's not. No spoilers, but she's not coming back. I would love to see Aubrey Plaza come back. She was fantastic Mm. in the second series. I just can't wait. And I think it's just going to build up the excitement more around it. It was actually meant to come out this next year in 2024. But obviously, given the strikes, everything has been pushed back. Mm. Uh, And despite two of them being dead, the Beatles are back at the top (laughs) of the charts. That's right. So they've secured their first top 10 hit on the Hot 100 singles chart in almost 30 years with the release of Now and Then. It's considered their final song. This is the one that was crafted partly using AI technology that used John Lennon's isolated vocals. The song was completed by Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and it's reached number seven with more than 11 million streams. And it makes history, actually. It's pretty historic because it marks, obviously, the Beatles' return to the top 
top ranks since 1996, but also it's their 35th top 10, leading you know their their uh, their role in that among groups. However, there is one one mega star who they cannot dethrone, and I'm going to let you take a guess at who that might it's be. It's Taylor. It's Taylor with Cruel Summer that's still number one, but that's from her Lover album. That was years ago. <laughs> yeah, which is great, and even she said you know, that was a song that, it, that it was kind of, they thought they were going to release it the summer that then the pandemic happened and it got stored and it became a fan favourite. I yeah. went to see the movie the other day, and I mean, you know, she does a whole bit where, like, here's the first bridge, and the and the crowd absolutely goes wild for that song. Um, but just on the Beatles, I mean, they're at number one here in the UK. It's their last ever song. This is kind of an example of good use of AI, isn't it? That it managed to, they didn't have the technology until now to just pick out this uh, this old demo. It was on a cassette that Yoko Ono had and they were able to get the vocal off it and put it onto a new recording. Yeah, I think it was an ethical use of it. It's not like that, you know, we keep hearing stories about singers having just completely random songs made using recordings of their vocals. So mm-hmm. this is actually something he did and they just used the technology to clean it up in order to put it on the, on the song. Mm. And there's something about these kind of lost tracks that people really love don't they that you've kind of heard rumors about and to bring it back to taylor she's got these vault tracks which go on the end of every album that she's re-releasing people kind of get really intrigued by these songs that never really made the cut for some reason yeah i think so there's a mystery about why they never did and it's really nice when they actually do come out like with taylor and her more recent release re-recorded 1989 she's got a few tracks on there one of them is really taking off is it over yeah. now it's amazing by and the you wonder way. why they i mean the Process, it used to be the process that you're trying to get it on a physical disc and you can understand why a track like now and then or something maybe just didn't make it on when it was a, a vinyl but nowadays you just wonder why anyone if you write songs that good why you'd ever leave them off a digital release it's a good point and I think it just kind of brings me to my last point here about how art actually can potentially be something that helps us cure loneliness so Jeremy Noble is a Harvard professor and he's studied loneliness for almost two decades he's recently recently released a book titled Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis and Disconnection. And in it, he basically makes the case that the creative arts can be a powerful tool for combating loneliness by exploring connection and suggesting that artistic expression allows people to explore feelings despite barriers. It's a conversation that is more ongoing. Obviously, after the pandemic, this has started being something that we're well more aware of. And it seems like it, it it's, it's proven, I guess, art can cure loneliness, or so he says, at least. And what art this week are you finding is curing loneliness? Is there anything you're really watching or into this week? Oh, yeah. I've been watching crazy series, but they've all been on like really dark murders and <laughs> series. I'm, I'm not sure that they've been curing my loneliness, but I am still rocking out to 1989, the, okay. the Taylor version, of course. Yeah. My recommendation this week, The Newsreader is an Australian show set in a newsroom in the 1980s. They use some real stories sometimes. It is the, the technology is old, but it's the most accurate depiction of newsroom culture I have ever seen. It's a really great show. Well, Monocle's Laura Kramer, thank you very very much. That's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Car- Carlotta Rabello. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Music.